Welcome to the Emmaus Fellowship Teaching Podcast. We trust you find this encouraging. Emmaus Fellowship is located at 205 North Pine Street in Woodland Park, Colorado. Our phone number is 719-687-6061. We trust you find this encouraging as you pour over God's Word with us. In a song, taught me how to sing. Now I have brothers and sisters, gave me a family. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm going through a season where I'm really getting introduced in weird ways. Uh, so I just got described as being food. That was kind of fun. Um, this one church I go to in Minnesota, every time I come, they tell the pastor tells a story about a, we- a family reunion and your weird Uncle Al. And then he says, okay, Brian, come on up. And so I, I think there's a message trying to be given to me, and I'm not paying attention. So would you guys grab your Bibles and go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. Now, as you're turning there, uh, I do want to make you aware of this. Next month, um, I will be with you a day early, October 7th. Is that right, Melanie? Make sure I said it right this time, October 7th. Uh, We've been um, working the last several months on me coming up on Saturday, and so I'm going to come up on Saturday in October. I'll be with you on the 8th also. But we're going to be doing a training from 10 to 3 o'clock on um, spiritual warfare and deliverance. And... uh, there's been a lot of teaching and training on it, and about, I think it was, oh my goodness, April, the Lord, I was just kind of talking to him about um, some stuff going on, and he started pointing out, Brian, there's a, there's just a need for the body of Christ to grow in spiritual warfare and deliverance because of the amount of occultism that's in our culture. And so I've taught this for years. People go, isn't that great? And then everyone goes on with their life. But we're actually having an increase of people that are dealing with demonic strongholds. The church needs to be aware of this. And so I'd invite you to come and join us. We'll do two sessions in the morning and two sessions in the afternoon. And what we're going to teach is we're going to teach what's called, it's interesting, a lot of times when you uh, are around and people teach on deliverance, they just teach what's called the principles of deliverance. I'm going to be doing that with you, but I'm going to teach what's called the presence of the Holy Spirit in spiritual warfare and deliverance. So how does the Holy Spirit actually bring his presence into the midst of this stuff? And how do we actually do what's called effective spiritual warfare? Instead of just, well, here's what people say, I don't know how to do this. We're actually saying, how do we actually win the day? All right. So with that, uh, mark your calendars for that. They'll be putting up something on the bulletin board, I think, or Melanie sending out an email. Uh, We'll be here next month on Saturday. So with that, we are now in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, and I, to prepare for what we're getting ready for, I've been working through obedience. And so I talked with you guys about it last month, and as we're going through different scriptures, uh, we came, I came upon 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's talking about obedience, but it's talking about obedience in context of spiritual warfare. And so what we need to do is we need to take a moment and just kind of dive into this scripture and say, well, what is it actually telling us? So before I start, I want to show you um, kind of where the body of Christ is with this topic on 
spiritual warfare, demons, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's the group over here. They're on the one extreme where they say, well, if I don't pay attention to this and I don't acknowledge that there are demons and I, and I actually ignore evil and just focus on good, they'll leave me alone. Then you have the other person, the other extreme over here where they don't even worry about good. They just like fighting demons and everything's about deliverance and demons, right? So our goal is to come to what's called the radical middle and find out where the scripture says we actually should be in this, all right? So before I start teaching on this, I want to show you something. If you're wondering how much weight is given to a certain topic in scripture, you have to see how much it's talked about in the totality of scripture. All right, so spiritual warfare is not talked about every time some subject comes up. It's talked about maybe uh, if we used a scale of uh, fifths, it's about uh, one-fifth of what's talked about in the Scripture. So it's not the dominating topic, but you are told to be aware of it. So uh, Russ just used the illustration of football. So it's learning to prepare yourself to go do battle, but not focusing on doing battle. It's about living life and then knowing how to deal with it. All right. With that being said, let's look at the passage. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. And we take captive thoughts to the obedience of Christ. All right, let's start working through this. So the weapons of our warfare. Interesting enough, in the, the Greek New Testament, this is talking about weapons come out of the concept of tools. These are the tools that God has given you. So I want you to just think for a moment. I'm going to go through every one of these and just explore them with you. But I want you to understand that when we talk about weapons, and we're going to see it even in this passage, uh, if you like marking other places in Scripture to get a context for it, uh, this would be what you would look at when you look at Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, it begins to explain weapons, all right? And the first weapon that most people don't see in Ephesians chapter 6 is it says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So you actually have to be strong in the Lord before you can put the full armor of God on. Now, what that means is, the, the New Testament, especially when they're writing on this theme, they're not saying you need to understand this in your mind. You actually need to get the power of God resting on you. Why do you need to get the power of God on you? Because it is the tool or the weapon to stand in a day of evil. Then the armor of God comes upon you and you learn how to use it. But if you don't have the presence of God and the power of God resting on you, you have no resources to draw from to stand against evil. Why? Because evil isn't a thought, it's a power and a thought. So the thoughts that come from the kingdom of darkness don't just have thoughts behind them, they carry spiritual power of demonic presence. So you need something greater than that to stand against those thoughts, and it's the power of God. So as we go into this passage now, one of the weapons of our warfare is it's a tool. Now, when they use the term warfare, it's actually interesting. Most people see warfare as the proactive part of it, attacking something. But every time the word is used in the New Testament, it doesn't just mean attack. It also means defense. 
So it depends on how it's being used and the passage that it's talking about. Warfare isn't, you don't just get tools to attack or you don't just get tools to defend yourself. You get the tools to do both. So it's saying that warfare is more than just protecting yourself and it's more than just attacking. It's the totality of what warfare looks like. All right. So as we begin to look at this passage, I want you to understand that as we're coming to this weapons of our warfare, he's talking about the proactive part of what warfare actually is. All right. Now, please remember, Paul is specifically talking about one form or what we call one battlefield of warfare. All right. And there are many battles of warfare. So he's now going to focus in on one and we have to begin to ask a question. Why is he focusing on this compared to all the other ones? So when we look at the passage, as we're going to now do, uh, it's going to tell us that, well, what's the main place that the enemy is trying to do something to people? It's in their mind. Okay, so the battlefield is the mind. Because that's where it's at, and because the Bible begins to tell you, well, this is what you're actually dealing with, it's not, Paul is going to say, well, so what does that actually look like? What are you and I looking at when it comes to this concept of warfare? All right. So the weapons of warfare are not of the flesh. And so now what we're going to do is in the passage, it is going to do what's called a contrast statement. And what that means is the Bible's going to show you, uh, it, here's the weak part of it, and then here's the strong part of it. So it says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So let's kind of explore that. In the kingdom of God, it's kind of amazing. You have to, uh, part of walking with the Lord, and the reason why I'm so fascinated by the concept of obedience at this stage in my walk and why I'm studying it so much is because anything you turn to that does not bring the presence and the power of God in the midst of it, you're trusting some form of your flesh. So, that whole thing I just began to lay out to you. If I believe I should go do warfare by some thinking about it or some, I'm just going to endure and I'm going to try to do it by the power of my own ability, the Bible is kind enough to basically point out to the fact that you've already lost because that power does not have the ability to stand up to the power that you're going to actually endure and face. And so, a lot of warfare teaching, they're teaching you, well, you need to understand how the helmet works and you need to understand about the belt and the shield and the breastplate and the feet and all, the, all that stuff. But if you don't have and turn to the presence of the Lord, you've already lost the battle before you've begun. Because God never communicates to believers you're ever to trust your own ability. He makes himself available to you to draw from him. Jesus was talking to the disciples, and they're walking from one city to the next, and he says, now, who do men say that I am? And some say, well, it's John the Baptist, and one of the prophets was raised from the dead. And he says, well, now, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, now, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. He said, my father did, who is in heaven. He says, and because of that, you're, you're Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I just want to stop and we're, we're talking about warfare. I want to focus on that little statement that Jesus made there. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail. All right. So first and foremost, you guys get it? 
the idea, as he says, the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against, it actually means, that statement means the church is advancing all the time from that perspective. So the church is always advancing. It's the enemy who has a gate, and it says his gate will not prevail against you. All right, the word prevail is what I want to focus on because it'll help us as we go into this passage. The word prevail in that passage right there and also in James chapter 5 when it's talking about the prayer life of Elijah. It says uh, the effective prayer, it, the word is actually prevail. Effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so that word prevail is interesting and it's going to help us as we look at this passage to unfold it. The word prevail, the first part of the Greek word, actually means to be pushed in the midst of a storm or a battle. All right, now that doesn't sound good, but it's trying to show you what's going on. So do you guys get it? When God leads me into praying for somebody or witnessing to somebody or sharing a scripture with somebody, I've just stepped into, whether I recognize it or not, resistance that's coming from the spirit realm. Now, what's interesting is because Christ who lives in you is greater than who lives in the world, you're called to actually stand there. But when you're called to stand there, it kind of messes with everybody. Wow, there's actually resistance. All right, it's like a hurricane. That's the way the Greek word describes it. Now, the second part of the word prevail is actually more powerful. The, the second part of the word prevail mean, describes the anointing that God puts upon you to stand in a hurricane of resistance. And it's actually in the Greek New Testament, it's very specific. It's actually called a warrior anointing to overcome. So how many of you recognize this? How many of you have ever had to take a stand either in prayer or in front of people and inside yourself there's extreme weakness? But when Christ pulls you into that, all of a sudden this anointing of boldness that you do not have begins to rest on you and you're able to stand and prevail. That's what God has actually said he wants to give you. He can give you the ability to overcome. Also, if you didn't know this, when that word is used, prevail, against the gates of the enemy or prevail in prayer in regard to what we're looking at, in the Greek New Testament, it also indicates God's intention. So, why does God leave you and I in an evil world to deal with all this stuff? Why does he say endure, preach, do all that other stuff? Because God doesn't call anybody into a battle that he's not already determined to win. So now we're going to talk about the weapons of your warfare. And God is saying, look, I'm telling you this because from my perspective, you're to overcome. Now, this actually takes a long time. I don't know if you guys ever do this because of our weakened state in our flesh. And also because of the brutal beating we received as slaves in the kingdom of darkness, we don't see ourselves as a victor. And so we come into Christ and immediately he pulls us into situations and he starts overcoming in us and he's trying to convince you, this is what I'm like. I've called you to be like me on this planet. You've, start, you've got to start looking at situations differently. Troubles in your life are not to destroy you. Troubles in your life are to perfect you so you overcome. I'll do it, Russ. Does anyone want to say amen? Or... Okay. So the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And then he turns to this and he does the positive contrast. They're divinely powerful. All right. So what does that word mean? Divinely powerful. And it's, it's saying divinely powerful for a specific effect. 
divinely powerful to destroy. Okay, this word divinely powerful, it's kind of fun. In the Greek New Testament, this is the word that's used for miracles. But there, when it uses that word dunamis, depending on the tense that's put on the Greek word, it's either talking about the initial explosion or the effect of the explosion. So here, when it says divinely powerful to destroying, it's using the word not only for the, 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 the energy or the power that's actually released, it's saying the effect of this release of power is to cause something. So in this passage, it's saying, God has made his divine power available to you. All you're supposed to do is call on it. And what he comes in is just like an, a bomb hits the ground where you're at, explodes, and the effect is to destroy something. I don't know. As a guy, I think that's super exciting. That sounds like war movies to me where you used to blow stuff up, right? So there's a part of Christianity where God actually says, okay, there's a season where you need to love and nurture and care for people. People. And then when it, in regard to evil or the kingdom of darkness, you get to like beat up on them. Isn't that exciting to anybody in the room? It's like they, they've tried to victimize you and I and, and try to make you feel defeated all the time. And God's saying, well, hey, go after them. Have some fun with them. Um, do you guys, do you remember in um, Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70. And they came back and they made this statement. Wow, even the demons subject are subject to us in your name and he's like all excited about that now why is jesus excited that a group of 70 people figured out they have authority over demons because according to the way the bible presents it the kingdom of darkness is victimized and is continually victimizing humanity and when jesus empowers people with his authority and presence it brings great joy to know that the very creation that he's made to be nurtured and cared for the enemy of them is being decimated so that people can be set free. And it brings great joy to Jesus to actually be in the middle of this thing. And most people think, oh, God's not into war. Uh, you know, when you say those kind of things, what Bible are you reading? He defines himself as the God of war. And it's not fleshly war, just art over stupid arguments. It's over the eternity of people's, uh, over their eternal souls and God wanting to actually love on them. And he's very intense on that happening. And anything that resists that, he loves going after that. And if you're going to hang out with him, you've got to get used to that. All right. So what is this divine power for? To destroy strongholds. All right. So now it's talking about the mind. He's going to say the mind is a stronghold. So Let's work on the Greek word for stronghold. Interesting enough, it could be described as a, uh, a big fence or a big, like in castles, they had these big walls, or it could be used as a structure around something. Now, interesting enough, as I'm going to start developing this stronghold thing, I want to just kind of lay down because it's not really taught a lot. And so people are like, well, what is a stronghold? Well, in regard to this, it's going to talk about thoughts that come to you, all right? So there, there are two things you need to know about a stronghold. First and foremost, all strongholds have what's called a foundation. If you know anything about buildings, depending on how strong a foundation is, is how well the structure can hold together. So in regard to this, the Bible is now saying, well, what does the enemy do when he wants to get you caught in something? 
he comes and brings a lie and he gets you to believe it. And he makes it so powerful to you that you accept it, that you see that as reality, it sets a foundation in you. And what that foundation is, and because it's a strong foundation, something more powerful has to come to break it up. Now, that's the first part of the idea of a, a, a stronghold. The second part is what's called the structure around the stronghold, what's built upon the lie. All right? Here in this passage, it's going to tell you the foundation of strongholds, and it's going to tell you the structure of strongholds. All right? So everybody who doesn't live the way the Scripture tells us or the way God speaks to you, they are believing a lie. It is so set in them that they actually see that as truth and they have no ability to pull themselves out of that. And the Bible is saying, well, God has actually given this, this really powerful thing. It's called his presence and his word. And those two combinations come into the human soul. They can decimate any lie that anybody believes. Do you guys, uh, I don't know if any of you guys do this. I'm kind of this weird, boring person. I love reading biblical archaeology stuff all the time. Does anyone in here ever do that kind of stuff? So I was watching, here's another boring thing I do. I'm watching a documentary on Exodus, story of Exodus, and they're talking about Jericho. And, you know, you can go see Jericho now. What's interesting about the whole thing about Jericho is this is the story of Israel and how they fought those battles when they went into the promised land tells us exactly what we need to know about spiritual warfare today. Remember, an angel comes to Joshua and he basically just says, all right, we're going to cross over and go take the promised land. And remember what God said to him? He said, the land is yours. Do you remember that? Now, do you guys realize they could have went, the land's ours, and stayed on the other side of the river and said, isn't it great the land's ours? Because God said it, I don't even need to possess it. It's just mine. But the Lord said, no, cross the river. And, the, and you guys see it? Every step of going into the promised land, God had to come in his power. So the first thing he had to do is bring his presence and separate the water so that they could go into the promised land. They go to Jericho. And how would a natural army, they would go do siege work and try to starve them out and tear down the walls. If you look at the walls in Jericho, what's really fascinating is they had three separate walls and they were more than 20 feet high and, and they had food in the city that would have lasted them for nine months. And if you look at the ruins of the wall, you can see that something exploded on the inside and blew the walls out. So how did God make them do warfare? You guys love how God does this. A weapon that you would not think, he says, all right, walk around it seven times, and have a worship service. Now, if we did that today, uh, you nutty Christians, why do you come up with these dopey ideas? Because the weapons of God's warfare are different than the power of the flesh. And here God's, he's telling them to march, and then the last day they have to do it seven times, and then they have to stop and shout. Now, you guys get it? Every one of those things were a weapon of warfare. So if you study worship in the scripture, you find out that it's a form of warfare. Did you guys know that every revival, like if you guys wanted a revival this week, you could do this? I know I'm scaring you when I say that. But if you get people to do a protracted amount of time of worship, the presence of God comes. And then it changes the atmosphere of the city. So the longer the church stays in worship, the more the atmosphere of heaven comes into a community. Do you guys get it? 
You're the influence of the community. And it's worship, something we've all enjoyed doing. He says, if you actually will do that, I'll come into a city. Okay. Well, it can't be that easy. Go study revival history. If you look at it, all of them are just protracted worship services. In Psalms 143, it actually tells you that worship binds the power of evil leaders so they can't do their evil schemes. Okay, let's keep moving forward. So there's a, we're still in strongholds. There's a belief of a lie. It's so solid in people, they see it as normal. And there's, there's a structure of lies, which means thoughts that come around it to reinforce it so that that foundation can never be broken up. All right. Do you guys remember one of the things that talked about in Ephesians chapter 6 about the armor of God is it talked about the enemy and what kind of weapons he uses. And one of them was it was called a flaming arrow. Right? Now, why, did they, why didn't they just say an arrow? By the way, just get really technical with you guys. Back in the day when they made flaming arrows, they used to be hollow. And they'd put this like gas and stuff like this so that when the arrow hit, it would explode like a bomb. Now, it's saying when the enemy comes against you, how does he come? He pulls an arrow of a thought and he pulls it back and he shoots it. And the flaming part is to hit the power of your flesh so that when the lie comes, you respond to it emotionally. It seems like the truth and then you grab onto it because you what? Can feel it. There's a sense of burning that comes to it. Does that make sense? The term burning there? Now, if you ever talk to, if any of you ever get to do counseling, first 10 years of me doing ministry, all I was doing was counseling all the time. You're, you would be amazed on how many people will talk about the lies they believe and how deeply they feel it. And that's why they can't break free from it is because they say, it just feels like it's true. Okay. The passage, let's not lose it. We talked about the foundation of a lie. We talked about the structure of a lie. And by the way, it revolves around the power of the flesh. Do you see why you can't attack the kingdom of darkness with the power of the flesh? Because it's not strong enough. So the enemy wants to lie to you about something. You believe it. And then he attacks the power of the flesh so that that'll reinforce that that's the truth to you constantly. It literally is like you're set on fire by a lie. Okay, well, here in the passage, Paul is now saying, do you see, that's actually what's going on with people when they're not telling you what's really going on in their heart. And it's saying the power of God is stronger than that. It can actually destroy it, not just leave it in place or it might get better or I'll just have to learn how to live with this. It says the power of God is strong enough to decimate that thing to where it has no control over you. All right, so let's keep moving on. So what does it say? Now it's gonna, he's going to go into, well, what are these lies that have these structures and these foundations in people? Now, before we go into this part, I just want to stop for a moment and kind of visit with you. Everybody has lies they're believing. The saddest part about walking with God, tell me if you guys experience this. The saddest part of walking with God is being victorious in one area and being defeated in another area. And rejoicing that you're set free and totally decimated in another area and then ignoring that area and saying, I just want to talk about the victory I have, while I have this secret, er, secret, secret area of defeat going, I mean, do you guys struggle with any of this stuff? Or is this just me? And this is the water in Kansas City? And so what scares me as I'm walking with the Lord about this stuff is this assumption that I've got it all figured out, 
and I'm right where I need to be. And then the Lord comes and visits me in his word and goes, oh, by the way, you're believing a lie here. Okay. So what are these lies, either the structures of them or the foundation of them? It says right here, we. Now it's saying, this is something you have to do. Are you guys ready? Christ has made himself available in every aspect for you to not be defeated. But this is one of the places where he's now going to turn to you and he says, in this place, you have to do this. All right. So what's the battle? The battle's thoughts. What is going on in the hearts of people? How you think about things. All right. And he's saying, the power that God has given us, the word and the presence of the Holy Spirit destroys what? Arguments. So that's the first level. Now, how many of you think uh, when, you know, if you just read this, you think, well, I'm not arguing about anything in my head. What do you mean arguments? So let's break down the Greek word. The word comes, it's so interesting. You have to take three steps to get to the word argument. The first is this. Foundation of this word for argument means thoughts. So we destroy thoughts. The next step of the Greek word, how you build upon that word, is the word reason. So it says we destroy thoughts. Why we reason about them, that becomes an argument because it's going to head to, what is this against? The knowledge of God. So are you guys ready? Any area that you believed a lie, a thought has come to you and you've grabbed onto it. All right. Now here's the fun part. The Bible is kind enough to talk to us about every area of our lives, like our past, our future, our money, our family, life itself. He, he just talks about all these topics. And what happens is, as we come to the Lord and we just assume, just like the children of Israel did, God said, well, you're saved, or there's your land. And they're like, I've got it already. But in regard to this, he's saying you get to go to every, every one of the cities in the battle, battle of the promised land represents these areas of your life. You have to let God come into your past. What do you believe in about your past? It's a lie. What structures around that that you think something in your past has the ability to hold on to you now and pull you down so that you're in despair looking at the future? That's a lie. What has been spoken to you and around that that keeps you thinking you can't be set free from something? Or let's take finances. He, what, what lie are you believing about God's provision for you? Um, I don't know if you guys, I don't even know if I want to venture off in this, but I'll go there just for the fun of it. The body of Christ is so confused about money and what God does as a provider that if you say, did you know God actually says you're supposed to be the head, not the tail? Everyone's like, that's, there it is, that group that's blab it and grab it. Now, I'm not telling you God's going to give you a Mercedes or any of that kind of stuff. I am telling you, the Bible is clear where God says you're the head and not the tail. And he said it's his desire to take care of you. And so if you believe you're supposed to be poverty stricken, you believed a lie. Poverty is a curse in scripture. And so without having to do a whole seminar on money, let's just go back to the topic. Who told you that God wouldn't take care of you? And then what structure has been put around that that you accept that as normal? And why does it affect you in your emotions? And you say, I guess I'll have to accept it. That's just the way it is. Let's take relationships. Have any of you ever had a bad relationship with somebody? Or in the church, have any of you had a bad church experience? 
And you go through that and this thought comes to you. Christians are like these immature and then whatever term you want to put on it after that. And you go, that's right. And you grab onto it and your emotions are hurt. And, you just, and that, now it's solid. So anytime God wants to say, hey, do you realize everyone's immature except you, uh, also you? It's like, no, that's not true. I'm mature and everyone else is immature. So you guys get what quality of relationships can God give us? Well, he tells us the structure, the power, and the health of healthy relationships. And if you don't think you can actually have that on this side of eternity, you've believed a lie. And God has to destroy that. Or we could take uh, what's going to come in the future. I am amazed. I sit down with Christians all over the United States, and everyone's afraid of their future. So can we just have a, a normal Christian conversation about your future? Since Jesus is sitting on his throne, and he says he's going to make all his enemies his footstool, you ultimately win in every situation. And so this idea that evil gets to just win the day and we just oh suffer for Jesus, the Bible doesn't present any of those concepts. So if you're afraid of the future, you've forgotten a very simple concept in Psalms 23 where it says goodness and mercy will pursue you all the days of your life. Now, if you're afraid of the future, you've either gotten it from media or the community you're around or someone that has authority, they've spoken to you and they've told you, believe this lie about the future. And then it's reinforced over and over again. And we all just talk about it. Aren't you afraid for tomorrow? Yes, I'm, how afraid are you? I'm more afraid than you are. And because it, it affects people's emotions, they think, well, I really feel the fear, so it must be true. Guys, you can have all kinds of lies that you're afraid about, and they are not based in truth. Hey, you want to have some fun? Spend some time with people that have schizophrenia as a problem. Their, their emotions are terrorized all the time, and they're not believing any truth about anything. All right, so it isn't the, just because it races through your head doesn't mean it's based on truth. And it almost, you guys ready? It almost doesn't matter what the system of the world says. It's not based on truth. System of the world. I didn't say people don't tell the truth. I said the system of the world doesn't tell the truth. All right, so the Bible is now saying in Christ, you have the ability to tear that down, get one thing that God actually puts as a cornerstone of Christianity. It's called peace. All right. So you tear down arguments. All right. And then it says every lofty opinion. Now, this is kind of interesting. How many of you have ever been reading, reading through the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians? And Paul's just kind of talking about the Corinthian church and the problems they're having. Then he just kind of stops and starts talking about the prince of the power of the air. And he talks about how the prince of the power of the air blinds unbelievers so they can't come to Christ. And then he goes through a section on the prince of the power of the air energizes unbelievers to do rebellious things, right? So I, I, I think it's pretty straightforward and clear. The Bible is saying when people stand before other people and say, hey, there is no God, or the Bible's a bunch of uh, myths, or this is all this nonsense and all that other stuff, the question comes, where did they get that idea? Now, this thing called lofty idea is tied to a Greek word called pride being expressed through thoughts. A lofty idea is pride being expressed through thoughts. A lofty idea is anything that raises itself against the knowledge of God and says, I know better than God does. 
Okay, so one person believes a lie because it was told to him and it's affected their emotion. Another person, the prince of power there, works in the sons of disobedience. That term works in the sons of disobedience is the Greek word for thoughts that are empowered. So when someone goes out and does, goes and murders somebody, everyone's like, well, that person's a murderer. The Bible say, no, the prince of the power actually came, gave them a thought, and then empowered it with a demonic presence behind it to actually get them to do something evil. Why? Because you, even in your fallen state, you were not wired to be evil. Why, it's really quiet. All right. So when it says any thought, now, you guys, I just kind of went after, well, this is how atheists think about stuff or people in false religions. They have this lofty idea that their group knows what they're talking about. So let's just bring it into the context of you and me. What's a lofty idea? Well, because of how weird this is, even if like in my life, when God was trying to heal me of certain things, I would make these statements back to the Lord like, I don't think you're able to do this. That's called a lofty idea that says, no, God says he's able to do it. And I turn around and say, oh, I don't think you can. Do you guys get it? It's raising a thought against what God says is actually true. And I said, well, because I, I'm a person and I'm, I think I'm smarter than most people, I actually know that I'm right in comparison to the word of God. I was sitting in a meeting once. I'm not going to tell you with who. But I was sitting in a meeting once and I was there with this counselor. And we were getting ready to do a small, uh, small group. And um, we were just talking about, you know, what it's like to take care of hurting people. And this counselor said to me, it actually shocked me. He said, yeah, I, I actually really don't believe people are able to get over anything. He said, I've counseled people for more than 30 years and I've watched them. And I really, I just don't think they're able to do that. And I, guys, you know, uh, I've seen people get over things. And so when he said that, I thought, how did you reach that valley of despair and start wallowing in that? That he believed a lie. And when he said it, I mean, wouldn't that shock any of you guys? So here, Jesus, it doesn't have the power to set people free. You know what that tells me? Tell me if you guys can recognize this. It means he's been using the wrong tool for so long, it's brought him into despair. And that's why he has no hope that Christ can do something. He's using the wrong tool. Could you imagine? If you guys say, let's go build a house, and I bring a BB gun. You're going, where's your hammer? Well, I, don't, I like my BB gun, and it looks really cool when I shoot it off and stuff like that. And then you say, well, go, could you actually go nail the boards together? And I'm shooting it with a BB gun, and you guys are going, what are you doing? It's the same thing. You guys get it? The Bible has given us these weapons. He says, look, I've given them to you. They're divinely powerful. But if you don't use the right one, I don't care how powerful it is. It's not going to have any effect. All right, let's keep moving on. Okay, so lofty opinions. And then it says, what are they raised up against? So it's saying, okay, so what's this whole thing about? It's, it's either arguments or reasoning that create strongholds, or it's these prideful opinions that make you think you know better than God does. And what it's saying is what it's fighting against is called the knowledge of God. Now I'm gonna, this is a very specific word in the Greek New Testament. So you guys join me. I hope I'm not boring you too much with this. But when it uses the term, the knowledge of God, the word knowledge of God is used actually three different ways in the Old and New Testament. And you kind of have to know them to make sense of what the rest of the passage is going to say. So we have to stop for a moment and talk about what is the knowledge of God. All right, the first form of knowledge that's actually communicated to us in both Old and New Testament is this term called 
God is a self-revealing God. So if God had not come clearly to humanity and communicated, I am like this, you could never discover it by studying things in nature. So the highest form of knowledge is revelation. Why? Because you would not know the mysteries of how anything works unless God comes among you and says, this is how it works. And uh, do you ever watch people? Uh, I, I love, now if you, uh, I told you I'm boring. I also love spending time listening uh, listening to debates and apologetics and all this kind of stuff. And I love listening to science always tell us we know more than the Bible does. I mean, do you guys ever like that argument? I always laugh at that. And a good apologist can say, well, uh, actually show me that's true. And then they collapse in on themselves. They can't prove anything because of their worldview, because this really is a God world. And so they, they collapse in on themselves. So someone can say, how do you know what you said is actually true? They, they, can't, they have no ability to prove it. Okay, that's another. That's the first form of knowledge. God has revealed himself. Do you guys get that? There is no way we'd know there was a trinity unless God revealed himself. There would be no way we would know why man is in a fallen state unless God revealed that to us. We would know no way of knowledge of how God actually wants to draw near to you, regenerate you, justify you, bring salvation to you. There would be no knowledge of that unless God revealed that to us. So God is a self-revealing God. The highest form of knowledge is revelation. The second form of knowledge is what comes out of revelation that's observable by mankind. This is the second form of knowledge, and it's called, ready, law or principles. So everything that you and I live in emanates from the nature of God. So God is law-like in his nature, isn't he? That's why sowing and reaping works. That's why the laws of nature are in, and you can trust them because God never changes. Laws reflect him and his nature. So you don't even have to know the Lord. If you obey the laws that reflect the nature of God, you get the same results regardless if you know him or not, because that's how he set up the universe. So do you, do you guys see the scripture actually comes to you and tells you, live like this, talk like this, treat people like this, do this with your resources. And you guys get it? It's almost like do A and B and C, and you always get D. And, and it works so well that the Bible can talk to generations and it works in every generation because that form of knowledge works because it follows the nature of God, which is law-like. That's the second form of knowledge that's given to us in Scripture. Third form of knowledge is actually kind of fascinating because this is the knowledge where you have to actually experience something before you say you know it's actually true. So do you guys get it? Let me give you an example in the Old Testament. Here God creates the heavens and the earth. Then he creates Adam and Eve. And then it says, Adam knew Eve. It didn't say God gave a book to Adam to figure out who Eve was. And, and God didn't come to him and say, now do this with Eve, and then you'll know her. It actually said, Adam actually, after he created her, he actually made her come near Adam and they actually had to be in relationship with each other, and they had to experience life together. That's, that's another form of knowledge, All right? So, by the way, just so you guys understand this, for some odd reason, our culture falls into this ditch all the time. If the Bible, a self-revealing God says, I am a God of love, all of you can say, yeah, I actually can comprehend that. God is a God of love. 
And then the Bible can actually show, so if you want to experience my love or experience what love is like, even in people that are made in my image, do these things and you'll experience what I'm like as a loving God. Right, so those are the two forms of knowledge. Our culture says, all I have to do is understand it conceptually and all I need to know is how to do it practically and you're missing the third form. And it's called you've got to experience God's love. And if you don't experience God's love, you actually don't have a full understanding of what love is. We don't have to sing foreigner songs about it or anything else like that. If you don't experience the love of anything, do you guys get it? The, the Bible is sitting here saying, God is not trying to teach you philosophy only. He's trying to give you his wisdom so you experience him and experience everything that emanates from him. And so we do this really clever thing. I don't know if you guys do this, especially in regard to this. The only way you're going to get broken out of a stronghold is the presence of God. Okay, let's keep moving forward. So it says the Bible's given you the ability to destroy everything that raises itself against the knowledge of God. All right, and then it says this, and then we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So let's work on the last part. Okay, take every thought captive. Well, you guys understand the, the, the Greek word is not kidnap. It's more of a term for prisoner. You're, you're actually taking someone and putting them in a cage. You guys get it? You're putting them in a place to where they have no power to exert their influence. But what's interesting is it's now saying you're going to take these thoughts to the obedience of Christ. So you guys get it? You're not wrestling the thoughts. Now, how many of you have been taught spiritual warfare? Your job is to wrestle with all these things. And this is the thing I want to get when I'm with you in a month from now. All these principles work, but I told you, if we leave the presence of God out, we're defeated because we're still trusting the power of our flesh. By the way, when Jesus was being tempted, remember when he was quoting the word of God? What most people don't get out of that point where he says it is written is the Greek inference that's on it, it was a rhema given by the Spirit of the Lord. So when Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, it actually meant the Spirit of the Lord told him to say that, and that's what stopped that attack from the enemy. He didn't just say, wait a minute, let me quote Psalms 98 to you. And that's how people teach this stuff. So now we got to actually bring it back biblically and say, okay, here are these thoughts, these arguments, these lofty ideas, what kind of power is behind them? Well, the Bible's saying they're not just thoughts. They carry spiritual weight behind them, and you need something with greater power to decimate that, or you're, you're just going to be fighting with them all the time. Now, let's see if you guys ever had this before I finish the passage. How many of you have ever been attacked, you knew you were, and you kept telling them to knock it off, and it didn't? You're going, Wow, this actually, I'm, I'm, not, I'm missing some part of the puzzle here because this isn't working. Here's why most of the time it's not working. It's not that the word of God isn't powerful, but you guys, the enemy does not respect anything except power and authority. He doesn't care what your opinion is about something. Okay. Wow, Brian, you're being intense. So let's take it. Here comes an argument, or I believe some line that has me captive now. How do I actually break free from it? What well, says you're supposed to bring it to the obedience of Christ? So if you weren't with me last month, let's just break it down. What does the word obey mean? First part of the word obey, obey, obedience we'll get to. Obey means to prefer a voice. 
All right, so obedience isn't the action. Obedience is the first part. You have to prefer someone's voice over someone else's voice. Well, we're talking about thoughts right now. By the way, if I didn't say this, I'm going to say it right now. Spiritual warfare are thoughts. You're dealing with thoughts, okay? So he's saying, all right, here comes a thought. So any of you get this stuff. Everything you've ever done never is going to amount to anything. You've tried and it's failed. And it's like you hear this dialogue and you think, no, that's not right. Leave me alone. Shut up in the name of Jesus. And it keeps wearing on you. So what, the, what this passage is saying, it's saying that's not how the process works. You take that thought and you stand right in front of the Lord and you say, what do you think about this? You're taking his voice as a preference to the thought that just came against you. And you're saying, what's your opinion? The minute you do that, you open up a channel to the dynamic, miraculous power of God that comes with his thoughts. And it breaks the power of these lies that lodge into you. Now, let's take the second word for obedience, if you remember. It means to prefer a voice. And it not only means prefer a voice, it actually means lift this voice up that if you're going to listen to any voice, it has to be this one. That's what it means to prefer. The second part of obedience means this. It's the word that's used in the Greek New Testament for miraculous power. It's called grace. It comes into your soul. And where you have weakness in your will and your emotions, it lifts you up so that you can will and do his good pleasure. So if that's how you live the Christian life, that's what obedience is, regardless of what God's saying. Do you guys see it? It's saying, well, in regard to warfare, stop doing warfare on your own. Let these, when they come, recognize, well, what's the process? I get before the Lord and go, what do you think about this? And the minute I do that, I'm having a river of grace flood inside my soul. It's lifting me up and pushing that down at the same time. And then anywhere it has a place to lodge in me, it's being cleansed and healed so it can't land there again. How many of you have ever done warfare for like three weeks and you're exhausted? I'm just tired of these thoughts. And then you just finally give up and go, Lord, help me. Did you ever wonder what's going on in heaven? Probably the Lord and a bunch of angels going, finally. <laughs> and then they rush in, right? I don't know where, you guys, tell me if you, I don't know where I got this when I read the Bible, but I got this really weird idea one was I'd, I'd never understood what God's part was to do that I'm not to enter into. And I never knew what was the part I was supposed to do. And I expect God to enter into. And then on top of it, I made this assumption. I, I don't know if it was from my upbringing or the type of theology I was being trained in. But there was this lot of this, you just have to gut it out. Okay, so let's just kind of cut to the quick. You ready? There's nowhere in scripture where it says God wants you to gut it out. In fact, God is trying to, the whole idea of obedience is trying to teach you to give up as fast as possible and turn to someone else. In fact, when Jesus said, and let's finish with this. When Jesus said, now, if you're my disciples, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. Okay, now what's that? He's saying any self-effort. Do you guys get it? Picking up your cross means I'm going to die to trust in my ability, and I'm going to turn to Christ, and I'm going to follow him. Now, when you follow him, did you guys realize once you pick up your cross and you follow Christ, a yoke comes on you, and he carries everything, and he gives you peace. And he says, now, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So, do you guys get it? As long as I hang out with Jesus, and I hold on to him, and stop trying to do all this stuff in my own ability, 
and trying to prove Jesus how strong I am. You guys ever done that? I'm, I don't need Jesus to help me anymore. I've got it all figured out. It's going, the minute you do that, you've, got, you've come under, you've lost free of the yoke, and now you're under the power of the flesh, and the enemy goes, great, let's shoot some arrows at you. The Lord's trying to just in a very gentle way tell you, isn't this amazing? The power of God is available to you. Take those thoughts, start, stop wrestling with them, say, what's your opinion on this? Let him just love on you, empower you, and set you free from it. All right, let's pray. You know, um, I don't know how everyone in the room feels, but I'm just going to make this confession to you. I'm amazed, Lord, how powerful your word is. Amazed by it. Could you make us people, like we read about in the Old Testament, people of understanding when we read your word, would you also give us an excellent spirit in regard to walking with you? Lord, we want to be a people that if your presence doesn't go with us, we just don't want to do this anymore. Give us your presence. Bring your power. Now, would you guys be willing, you don't have to pray this out loud, but would you be willing to join me? Lord, I present myself afresh to you. I take every area of my life and I just lay it at your feet. And anywhere where I've believed a lie, I just welcome you. Come with your love. Break me free from it so that I can walk in all the good things that you've intended for me. Anywhere where I'm entrenched and I do not believe that I can be saved in that area of my life, break that stronghold off of me. Tear up the structure of it and give me peace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. It's our joy to offer these podcasts. We sure hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, any prayer requests, feel free to drop us a line at Fellowship at iCloud.com. If you're curious about ways you can be more deeply involved in this community, visit our website at EmmausFellowship.org and be sure to like our Facebook page.